open our eyes, Lord. If you're a guest tonight, we have been studying the life of Elisha, the great prophet. And we will continue to do that through the end of uh, May. So that means we have about four more lessons. And we're not going to be able to cover his complete life, but we will have um, looked at, and I think, about three-fourths of the life of Elisha. What we're doing now, when you, when you look at where we are in 2 Kings chapter 6, we're making a little transition. Up until this particular time, uh, we've just been mostly seeing Elisha in his private life and some interesting private things uh, that happened. Now we make that transition, starting with Naaman that we talked about in our last lesson. We're making the transition to his public ministry. If you'll remember in our very first lesson, and I'm sure you remember everything I said, but in our very first lesson we talked about one of the big differences between Elisha and Elijah. Elijah, he was against the system of the day and the leaders of the day. He was on his own out there. Uh, and then Elisha was different. Elisha worked within the system. He worked within the politics and with the armies of that day. And he was a more sociable person, you might say. So when you look at this, you see the treme tremendous difference in these two. Of course, as we also pointed out, God needed a different man at a different time. When Elisha or Elijah came along, God needed somebody to deal with Ahab and Jezebel. And that's why Elijah was the prophet that he was and he was chosen. Now, when Elisha comes along, it's a little different. In the sense that God needs somebody to work with the king, to work in, even though he didn't like the king, to work with the king and to work within the system. So, we're moving now out of Elisha's life, private life, starting with Naaman, and now we're looking at he works with those that are around him, especially uh, the government. In this lesson tonight, we're going to see how Elisha opened and closed eyes. Tonight, I'm going to introduce you to a verse. Some of you may be familiar with it. Then you may not. But I'm going to introduce to you a verse that you need to write down. It ought to be a refrigerator verse. It ought to be a mirror verse. It ought to be a verse maybe you put in your car. I guess more than anything else, it'd be a verse that you put in your mind, in your head, and remember it. Because to me, it's one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, even today. And maybe even more applicable in some ways today. So let's get into our outline. You got it there? Let's break it down and look at the text and look at the story and see what happens now as Elisha gets more involved in the public affairs. The first thing we see on your outline is we're going to notice a frustrated king. And this is going to be the king of Syria. And he has every reason to be frustrated. And we'll see why as we get into our text. Verse 8 begins, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. Now that's interesting. We just finished up about Naaman and how that Naaman 
the commander of the Syrian army is sent over uh, to see the king of Israel and to see Elisha. But now the king of Syria is making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. Well, let's sort of break this down and look at this for a moment. It says, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. More than likely, this was Benadad. We see in uh, chapter 6, the same chapter, verse 24, and it happened after this that Benadad, king of Syria. So here is Benadad, and uh, you have the king of Syria. And notice it says, uh, this, oh, this reverse always gets me for some reason. I don't know why I can't figure it out. Notice what happens now as you look at, we continue to break it down. The king is talking, and he's saying, I'm going to do this. I want to have a discussion with my commanders about where we need to go. Notice that the plans that failed in verses 9 through verse 12. And the last part of verse 8 that we just looked at, it said the king consulted with his servants saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. There is a, a meeting uh, that takes place here. Uh, and the king has ideas. He says, we're going to go to such and such a place, and we're going to set up a camp. Now, when you look at that, you may think, well, I don't know what camping is. We love to camp, you know. Well, it's not that kind of camp. When you begin to see that word that's used there, it means uh, a camp for war. It means like you've seen situations you've read about in the Civil War and others where they would set their tents up and they would be ready for war. That's the kind of camp. And so there's a plan made by the king. We're going to go here and we're going to go to this and we're going to do that. Now as we think about his plan, he's made plans, but his plans are going to fail. Notice in verse 9, And the man of God, Elisha, sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down from there. We talk about the frustration of the king, and here's the frustration. You see, Elisha is telling the king of Israel, don't go here, because this is where the king of Syria is coming. And everywhere that the king of Syria would go, it was like everybody was on guard. There'd be an army there. It would be like it's protected. Like the king was supposed to be there, the king of Israel, but he's not there. And so there is this frustration that builds from the king because uh, they know about his coming. Notice also in verse 9, the man of God sent the king of Israel, said, Beware that you do not pass this place. When you look at some of the commentators, they really don't know if he's talking about Elisha or about Elisha or the army of Israel when he says you. Really, it doesn't matter. Uh, the issue is uh, they're going to eventually come after Elisha, as we're going to see in just a moment. 
Also notice in verse 9, he says, The man of God sent to the king of Israel. Let me tell you about this. I mentioned this a few moments ago. Elisha doesn't like the king, Joram. He doesn't. In fact, uh, you go back in the chapter 3, and we looked at this text and this story a little earlier. Uh, this was one story before you got to Naaman where he was involved in the events uh, besides just his own life. And remember, that's when he went and he helped the three armies to have victory over Moab. And uh, so watch what he said here. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, he liked him. I would not look at you nor see you. He didn't like him too much, did he? No. But here's the thing. Elisha is the protector of Israel. And whether he liked or disliked Joram, he loved Israel. And his job was to protect God's people. And so this is why we find him uh, doing this. Now, notice in verse 10, then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him. And he was watchful there, not just once or twice. This wasn't a coincidence. This happened over and over and over again. The king of Syria would plan, I'm going to go such and such, I'm going to set up a camp, and we're going to defeat these people. And over and over again, Elisha would tell him, get ready, king, don't go there. King of Israel, don't go there. And he would say, they're coming, get ready. It happened not just once or just twice. Then notice verse 11. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled. The word that's actually used there means the tossing of a, uh, waves in a storm. It means he was, he was troubled. I mean, this guy was just furious because he couldn't catch Israel and he couldn't catch the king because they were always, they always knew where he was coming and what he was doing. He was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? What's he asking his servants to do, the king of Syria? Yeah, he said, we got a spy in this camp. We somehow, some way, we have a traitor. And we need to find out, and I need to know who this traitor is. Now that would sort of stir up the people, wouldn't it? To know, uh-oh, the king could point me out. Uh, you go all through history and you find that traitors are not dealt with in a nice way, are they? I was watching a documentary a few weeks ago about Saddam Hussein and uh, when he came to power uh, in his first Congress or whatever they call it, uh, but he had all these politicians there in his first meeting with him when he came to power. and He had this guy there in the bath, the bath, bath party. 
that he found out was trying to overthrow him. And he had this guy calling out names. Call out ten names, and here come the, the secret service for Saddam, and they'd take them out, ten people. And then he called ten more out, ten more people. Called ten more names out, ten more people. They came and got them right in the middle of that government meeting. Finally, they eventually took out 66 people. And a third of those people were executed because they were considered traitors. We remember uh, reading also about uh, the uh, guy from Korea. Was it Kim Jong-un or something like that? You remember when he came to office, what he did? He took his uncle that was his mentor that had taken him and trained him. He took him out, took him out of a, a government meeting, just like Saddam Hussein, and him executed. And it's a question about how he did it, but they had him executed. Hitler did the same thing. So can you imagine how these people both say, oh, oh no, what's going to happen here? The kings want to know, where's the traitor here? Traitors are not treated real nice in history. Let's see what happens. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. What does he mean here when he says, He knows the words you speak in your bedroom? What do you, what's involved with that? Well, I got it up there. He says, you know what? Elisha knows your private thoughts and your words. Now, here's my question I ask here. How does this servant know that? How does this servant know that uh, Elisha is, knows everything? I don't know. It could have been Naaman. You know, we know Naaman had experienced that great miracle of having his leprosy cleansed. And when he went back, could it be Naaman saying, man, this is Elisha in the ballgame? I don't know. Could it have been that they had some spies in, in Israel and the spies knew what was going on between Elisha and the king of Israel? I don't know, but that's interesting. The words that you speak in your bedroom. I mean, we, we look at that. And we say, wow, that's sort of scary. Wouldn't it be scary if uh, somebody says, I know the thoughts and the words that you speak in your bedroom. Boy, that would be scary, wouldn't it? Yeah. We today... We know that the Lord knows what we do. And the Lord knows what we say. And the Lord knows what we think. We know that. And the reason we know that is because the Bible tells us that. And this is not the only passage. But the Bible tells us that all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, here's what I'm leading to here. Here's this comment by Henry Blunt. 
We say that God is all eye, all ear, all knowledge. And we live as if he were absolutely blind and deaf and ignorant. I mean, I, I can read this text here and I can see, boy, this would be scary for someone to tell me, you know, Elisha the prophet knows everything you think and everything you do and everything you say. But it's easy to really get that, forget that God does this. God does this. So, we have plans that have failed. We got a frustrated king, and the reason he is frustrated is because his plans have failed. And the reason is because Elisha knows everything that's going on. He's telling the king. All right. Notice the last part of verse 12. The words that you speak in your bedroom. I asked the question, how did the servant know? How did he know? That's interesting. All right. His plans, remember he was sitting, he said, we're going to go such and such and such and such. We're going to set up camp. He's got plans. His plans have failed because there's an all-seeing eye watching him. Now, there is a plan now that's sure to fail that takes place in verses 13 and 14. Notice what happens. So he said, go and see where he is. There's a new plan in town now, a new game. It's not so much the king of Israel, and it's not so much the army of Israel now. The plan now is we got to get Elisha. I mean, uh, there's no way in the world we can capture anything if Elisha knows everything we're doing. So we got to go and see where he is. We got to get him that I may send and get him. And he was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. This leads me to believe that maybe there were some spies in Israel. And why they knew so much about Elisha. Because now they know, they not only know that Elisha is the one that's telling the king what's going on with the king of Syria, but also they now know that Elisha's in Dothan. Dothan is a little interesting place. Uh, you see up there on the top, the king of Aram, that's Syria. And then you see where Dothan and Samaria is. I guess one of the Dothan's claims to fame is that that was where Joseph was put into the pit back in the book of, uh, of Genesis. And remember that in Samaria uh, was where uh, Elisha lived. And of course, we've already noticed that Elisha traveled here and there from those schools of prophets and everywhere else. And Adolphin's about 11 or 12 miles north of Samaria. It's on a hill. And somehow, someway, Elisha has found himself in Dothan. Now notice verse 14. Therefore... He sent the king of Syria. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there. They came by night 
and surrounded the city. Well, they could do that because Dothan wasn't really that big of a city. Notice he says that he sent a great army. It seems like when you look at the text and the context that this is not all of his army. He sent a great army, but not all of his army because you're going to see a little later on in verse uh, 24 in this chapter, it happened after this that Benadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army. So this is not all of his army, but it's enough to surround the city uh, of Dothan. Now, here's my question when I read that. What's the king reasoning? What's his reasoning here? He already knows that Elijah is ahead of the game. That Elisha knows everything is going on. Don't you think a, a smart king would say, well, Elisha already knows this. So we're going to come and we're going to surround or try to surround this city? I don't know. I, I, I look at that and that's why I guess one of the questions that I asked there. But the plan that's sure to fail is we're going to get Elisha. We're going to get this man that knows everything that's going on. Notice the last part. They came by night and surrounded the city. Uh, came at nighttime because they couldn't be seen. They could sneak in. And Elisha wouldn't know about it. And he could not run. And they'd surround the city if he did try to run. <clears throat> There's no way. There's no way that he is going to escape. So, here's a plan that they've got. We're going to surround the city of Dothan. It's sure to fail. And the reason is because you're dealing with God. So we see in the very few first verses of our text a frustrated king. But now we're going to see a fearful servant. Like a lot of us sometimes. In verse 15. And as we look at verse 15, we're going to see an overwhelming force. Or what seems to be an overwhelming force. We have a question mark there. Verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God arose early. Now, <clears throat> we don't know who this servant is. Remember, we talked about Gehazi. And in one of our previous uh, lessons, our last lesson, Gehazi got leprosy, white as snow, because of his greed. Remember that? But also remember that I told you in one of the first lessons about Elisha is that his story is not in chronological order. Because we're going to see Gehazi in chapter 8 in a, uh, in a few chapters. So we don't know if, if this is in chronological order or not. It could be it's a new servant replacing Gehazi. This could be Gehazi. But when the servant of the man of God arose early. We don't know why he arose early. Maybe that's just what he did every day, like some of you do. We don't know if he got up to get water. We don't know if uh, he was going to get everything ready for Elisha to go back to Samaria. We don't know that maybe he heard the chariots and the horses during the night or in the morning, and he got up to check on what all the sound was. But he arose early, and he went out. There was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, and his servant said to him, Alas, my master, 
What shall we do? He is scared to death. What in the world are we going to do? Uh, that statement there implies something. It implies no hope. It implies that there's nothing in the eye of the servant. There's nothing that can be done. So, we look at this, what seems to be an overwhelming force. Let's look at this for a moment. What about an overwhelming world? Let's just stop here and, and think a little bit about uh, this servant. Because I think we find ourselves identifying with this servant so often in life. Like this servant, many times we felt ourselves overwhelmed. We have felt ourselves crying out, what in the world am I going to do? We look out and it seems like we're surrounded by the enemy. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And we wonder, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We get up in the morning and we look around and there's the enemy. C.S. Lewis said every morning before we wake up, there are all these thoughts and all the things we got to do today. And, and they're there as soon as we open our eyes to just flood our mind and take over our mind and surround us. Well, that's where a lot of us feel sometimes because the world seems to have surrounded us and we live in an overwhelming world. You know, when you get feeling that way, maybe you feel that way tonight, but when you get feeling that, feeling that way, you need the message that the servant got here. When he cried out, what in the world are we going to do? Let's look at the fearless prophet, Elisha, as we try to wrap this up. Comfort for the fearful then. This leads us to, as I mentioned at the very beginning of our class, one of, I think one of the most beautiful and meaningful verses in all the Bible. Verse 16. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. First of all, he says, Don't fear. Don't fear. I started to talk a little bit more about that phrase, do not fear, because, man, that is found all over the Bible. It's found all of the Old Testament, and it's found in the New Testament. Don't fear. Don't fear. Don't fear. I mean, you see it over and over again. Such passages like Psalms 27, 3a. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart, David would say, shall not fear. Well, this is the same situation that Elisha and his servant find themselves in. And uh, what's he going to do? You know. Now, here's the question we can ask. Do not fear. Why? Why should Elisha and his servant not fear? Why should we, when we get up every morning, or when we get up in our life, look like we're surrounded by the enemy? And we wonder, what in the world are we going to do? Why should we not fear? Verse 16, the last part. 
Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That's a verse you need to remember. That's a, that last part of that, isn't that powerful? Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. When you look at this same story in 2 Chronicles 32.7, here is how it is said. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with them, for there are more with us them than with him. Now, that leads us to ask the question, uh, what does that mean? I don't know, in my mind's eye, I can see, and I don't know if this happened or not, I just, you know, my mind runs, runs wild sometimes these stories. I can see that servant going out in the morning, and he started seeing this city surrounding all his chariots, and he starts counting one, two, three, 100, 200, 300, 1,000, 2,000, and then all of a sudden he runs back and says, Elisha, Elisha, there's just, there's 2,000, there's 3,000 soldiers out there, and Elisha, it's just one, two. And Elisha says to him, there's more with us than with them. What does that mean? For there are more with us than with him. Verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and the chariots of fire were all around Elisha. The servant needed his eyes of faith opened. The servant was just seeing through the eyes of the flesh and not the eyes of the spirit. And Elisha was saying, look, wait, 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 I've seen, I've seen the spiritual side. And how had he seen the spiritual side? Remember? When he saw Elijah ascend? Then it happened as they continued on and talked, and suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha already knew, he, he, he saw with the eyes of the Spirit, and he knew that there were far greater more of us than it was of them. Uh, the imagery in the Bible is this. Our time is almost gone, and, and we can't get into a long discussion about angels tonight. I've taught classes on angels but what he's referring to here, it seems, is the angelic host. And he's pointing him and wanting him to see that when you have the angelic host of heaven, no matter what situation you ever find yourself in, you're always in the majority. Even though it may be just one and two. And it appears that way. You open your eyes and you see in the spirit world. Now let's, let's apply that. As we got about four minutes here, 
comfort for the fearful now. Uh, our greatest need in our lives is to open our eyes to spiritual realities. I think one of the reasons why we are so constantly disappointed and we're so constantly discouraged as Christians is because our eyes are not open to the Spirit. I believe that our eyes are not open to the spiritual. And we go around thinking that we're in the minority, and we're not. You see, I don't understand all about angels. I really don't. All I know is that they're real. I don't understand how all they help us. I do, I know they help us. Okay? Now, if somebody said, what about guardian angels? Well, I got a lesson on that. We don't have time to get into it. I don't think we have really guardian angels. We have angels, though. I only have one specified angel for each one of us, but we have angels in the angelic host. And sometimes we forget that. Let me show you some verses in the Bible. Psalms 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. I didn't say that, the psalmist did. 125, 2, as the mountains, we sing this song, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forward and forever. I noticed the interesting thing in reading this story. It said that the, the, the Syrians surrounded the city of Dothan. But if you look in the text and go back and look at the story, it says that this angelic host surrounded Elisha, the individual. Not just the whole city, but the individual. It means a lot. Are they not, Hebrews 11, 14, 1, 14, are they not all ministering spirits, speaking of the angelic host, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Now, like I said, I don't know why all is involved with that, folks. But they're there, and whatever they do, they do. Psalms 91, 11, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. We forget that, don't we? 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than those who are in the world. Deuteronomy 24. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. 2 Chronicles 32, 8. With him is an arm of flesh. This is Hezekiah to Israel. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened. And there's Romans 8, 38. What then shall we say to those things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what you take on that simple thought tonight. I mean, we know this stuff, but we need to be reminded of it. That when we think we are in the minority, we are not. When we think we are defeated, we are not. And even though the enemy may surround us, God surrounds us individually. Any comments or thoughts about our story tonight? Powerful story, isn't it? Beautiful verse to remember. Any thoughts? I think 
That's good. Here he says, Paul summed up everything we talked about tonight in this story right there in that statement. Amen. Don't forget this. Take this with you. As you go out there tomorrow, and as the world tries to surround you, and remember, there's more of you than them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time of your word tonight. We thank you for this tremendous story of the great prophet of Elisha. Help us to remember every day of our life. Help us to remember that we're not in the minority, that you're with us, and all the hosts of heaven. And help us to be gathered with strength, as were the Israelites when Hezekiah reminded them of your presence. Help us to leave out here tonight and help us to keep this constant awareness with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bye.